Well, a few years ago, I went to jury duty. I tried to get out of it, but I was unsuccessful, so I sat through two court cases. The one I'll always remember, the one was a case of a man who was accused of terroristic assault against his ex-girlfriend. And so we had, of course, the defense attorney, we had the accused, we had the prosecuting attorney, we had the jury, we had the judge, and all the pieces were there for a court case. And so these, these, this was the time period of landlines, and so she had one of those old-fashioned answering machines. Do you remember them? I used to have a Panasonic answering machine. I thought it was really cool. But anyway, I had the little tapes inside. And she had one of those. And so basically her boyfriend would call her up and he would threaten her. In fact, one of the recordings that the jury listened to was that he threatened to throw a bomb through her window. And so that's really all we needed to hear. And the only thing the defense attorney could say over and over and over again is, uh, jury and judge, uh, my client was just speaking out of anger. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, we, we convicted him. This passage of Scripture is kind of like a court case that we'll look at in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. But so far in the book of Micah, just to give you uh, up to speed, because we're in chapter 6 now, but it's been a couple weeks, so just doing a summary of this relatively short book, seven short chapters of Micah. So far, we have learned that God will most certainly judge his people for their sins. He'll, he won't condemn them, but he will judge them. He will course correct them. And Joel and Micah were similar in their approach because some people were saying, well, you know, God will not judge us. God will not discipline us because we're his people. And so these judgments that are taking place, these locusts in the example of Joel, or these foreign invasions are just arbitrary and they're just by chance. They have no relationship to how Israel is behaving. And both Joel and Micah were very emphatic. No, the reason why you're experiencing these negative things is because of your sinfulness and your rebellious attitude against God. And so God will most certainly judge his people for their sins. Greater calamities will also come if Israel didn't learn. And so from Micah's perspective, the northern part of Israel will be swallowed up by Assyria in just a few years. But then if Israel continues to go against God, the southern kingdom of Judah will also be swallowed up. And we know that's what took place. Assyria took the north, Babylon took the south. Um, he also said the oppressors will lose. And this was the primary problem that Israel had. You and I, in this day and age, really, we do not know what true oppression is. We have what I would call faux oppression, fake oppression, pseudo-oppression. Um, in our day and age, there are authorities to go to to appeal. But in Israel's day... The authorities were the ones who were doing the oppression. They were the ones who were stealing people's land. They were taking people's inheritance. And when you took the land of an Israelite man, you were taking his identity. You were taking his value from him. And this is what was taking place during Micah's time and specifically what he condemned. 
That's why I call Micah, he's the blue-collar prophet. He's the populist. He is sticking up for the little guy, and he is encouraging God to discipline, to course-correct the nation. And then he focuses in on the people who are really the core of the problem, the false teachers and poor leaders, both religious and civil leaders, who will lead the nation ultimately to destruction, but God will restore the nation ultimately in the long run by grace. And so Micah harshly criticizes the false prophets who just wanted to scratch people's itching ears, telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. They were saying, well, God made all these promises to Israel. There's no way in the world that he's ever going to discipline Israel or let something bad happen to them. But they were only giving half of the truth. God ultimately will restore and be gracious to Israel. But in the short term... Israel also had a Mosaic bilateral covenant that if you do not do these things, you will be cursed. If you follow God, you'll be blessed. But if you follow Molech or Baal or someone else or your own pride, you will be cursed. And that will be the course correction that you most desperately need. And so he focused in on false teachers and false leaders But then, in stark contrast, he also reveals about the true leader, the one who will come from an unlikely place, Bethlehem, in stark contrast to the false leaders and the false prophets of Micah's day and age. There will one day be a true leader, the one who will secure and shepherd and save his people in not just his first coming, but also in his second coming. He will do those three things. The focus of his first coming would be to secure and shepherd and save his people spiritually. But then ultimately he will do the same thing physically. He will restore God's people. He will resurrect believers. He'll restore the nation of Israel and bless his people, both Jew as well as Gentile. And so that brings us up to Micah chapter 6. Just two more chapters to go in this short book. Micah now pivots from discussing past sins and past promises and their effects on the future, both negative and positive, to now he pivots in chapter 6, To encourage the reader, encourage Israel in his day and age to change their mind about their present sins because of who God is and what God has done and what God will do. So he pivots from the past to the future to here and now, whether it be Israel 700 years before the time of Christ or whether it be Keller, Texas in 2023, these words apply to God's people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, whether they be Israel or the church. These words apply to all of us because it is most certainly the word of God. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 to see about this court case that God is trying to make against Israel. In verses 1 through 3, it says this, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear What you have to say here, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, 
For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. This is what God says through his prophet Micah. God seems to be making a case, kind of a lawsuit almost, against his people for their breaking of his package of promises with them, the covenant. He challenged Israel to stand up and make her case against God. He called for outside witnesses to confirm that he has always been righteous and gracious and merciful and protective of his people. The mountains and the hills. And this is not just isolated to Micah. We see it from the prophet Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah. He said this, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And so we appeal to someone or more accurately something objective, the heavens and the earth itself. Micah says the earth and the foundations of the earth and the heavens. But then Jeremiah also uses the same technique. He says, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And then have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, things that would contain a fairly large volume of water, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You want to go your own way. And so the heavens, the earth, the mountains, the hills, the foundation of the earth, whatever it might be, whatever is a part of God's creation, though it be inanimate, I want you to testify and witness that I've always treated my people, another part of my creation, in fact, a very important part of my creation, I've always treated them really well. But first, God made the case that Israel was at fault. But then he shifts, he pivots to the possibility, even though it's rhetorical, you could say, to what has he done wrong? What have I done wrong? How did he burden, that's the clear Hebrew word that he uses there, how did I make weary, how did I burden my people? What has he contributed that caused them, or tempted them, or frustrated them to disobey him? Did he give them unusual, harsh requirements? Were any of his promises that were supposed to be fulfilled by now? were unfulfilled? God, in essence, makes himself the defendant. His approach, and don't miss this, observe this, absorb it, allow your soul to marinate in it, wrap your brain around it, do not leave this room without understanding this observation, that God makes himself the defendant and his approach is filled with pathos and sensitivity. It exemplifies God's style of relating to us, his approach, his attitude, his personality, if you will, toward us. That's the gold 
that we can mine out of this particular passage of Scripture. It says a lot about God's style of relating, his attitude, that he most certainly could have just listed a slew of accusations against Israel and left it at that, and he would have been perfectly justified and perfectly accurate. But he didn't do that. He actually brought the attention to himself, though rhetorically, because we know that uh, there's nothing really you can say against God, but he went to that trouble to say, hey, look, look at me. Is there something that I did wrong? See, God projects his tender love, his vision and expectation for a close relationship, and the fact that he is a personal God, able and willing to care and communicate, but also, at the same time, without any contradiction, he is a holy and just God who does have some expectations for his covenant people. And he's not going to back down on that one. It's not just one or the other, it's both and. He is truth and grace. Don't miss it. Yahweh is unique in so many ways among the marketplace of deities. You're not going to hear any of the Greek or Roman pantheon say this. You're not going to hear the gods of the Egyptians say this. You're not going to hear any of the gods of the Canaanites ever come close to this. You're only going to hear from the one true God, and his name is Yahweh, and he is your God. Amen? And so God invites his people to review his character and his actions. He says, be open. What do you got? Let me know about it. Yahweh is relationally vulnerable here and tender. Don't miss it. The process of God focusing our attention on him, his motives, his character, and his actions, is exactly the thing that ultimately transforms us. And so the curtains are pulled back as to how is it that God changes his people? Well, he renews our minds, but how does he do it? What are the mechanics of his transforming us? How does he change us from the inside out? Well, he focuses our attention on himself, his motives, his character, and his actions. Will he ever bring up our sin? Of course he will. But the thing that really transforms us is not our being stuck in the muck and mire of our sin, but rather to take our focus away from that and from our contemplating our navels and looking at ourselves and focusing in on him, that's the thing that really changes us. So I hope you hear this, church, because it's exactly what all of us, including myself, need to hear. By far, what changes us is bringing our current conditions and experience, even our emotions, and then comparing it to him and who he is and what his motives are and what his character is. We feel certain emotions, and then we just allow them to ping up against his character. So as you and I experience bitterness, we read the pages of Scripture, We fellowship with other believers who are themselves forgiving and have been forgiven. We approach it with our anger, resentment, and our hurt 
and our bitterness. And so when we bring our bitterness up against God and his ability and desire to forgive, our forgiveness, our bitterness turns to mercy. Little by little, bit by bit, inch by inch, every nook and cranny of ourselves is transformed as we slowly enter into the process of sanctification and change. We might be fearful, but our fear is transformed to faith as we experience his sovereignty and his benevolence. And I've talked to you some about this, where you go through a really bad situation, and um, you, you know on paper, you know the academic approach to God's sovereignty. You can even quote a few Bible verses and tell a few Bible stories. But then when you go through this painful experience, at the, and you're at the end of it, it's like, wow, I not only know that God is sovereign, I have experienced his sovereignty. And you've just been changed and transformed, and you'll never go back. You'll never recover from it from a worldly perspective. You will always be changed. We might be anxious. Our worry is transformed to anticipation when we, when we learn about his omnipotence. Not just on paper, not just academically, but when we really understand his omnipotence in a real way. Uh, you know, when you're, going, when you're about to enter into a trial... The best thing by far to say out loud, I would recommend, just in case there's some demons listening. The best thing to say is, God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. Allow your worry to change to anticipation. Why? Well, because we've got God's sovereignty, his benevolent sovereignty in our corner. What about arrogance and pride? Um, when we see the humility of Christ, uh, when we see, read, and experience his humility, that even though he always maintained his deity, he did not have a spirit of demandingness to be treated like a king. But he came as a king, but in appearance as a pauper, to save us from our sins. And so I approach that truth with my arrogance, and my arrogance and pride becomes brokenness, exactly where you and I need to be, so that way we keep growing, so we're not so full of ourselves anymore. We all have experienced hatred where we want something bad to happen to someone else. Believe me, in our day and age, in our culture, there are a lot of targets for our hate, It's easy to hate a lot of people. But then when I see his love and also his command and his expectation for the church that we are to love our enemies. And I see Jesus actually doing that because at one point in time I was his enemy and he still loved me. God demonstrated his love to you in this that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. He loved me in a real tangible way, and he loved you as well. And so when I really experience that, when I wrap my brain and my soul around it, my hate becomes other-centeredness, and that is the working definition of love. But then we also have the tendency to be judgmental. But then when I see his grace, that he gives me things that I do not deserve, unmerited favor, 
um, good things that I do not deserve. And he gives me one gift, one grace after another. I cannot allow myself to stay the same. I am going to be transformed by that, and you will too. And my judgmental attitude becomes understanding. We also can experience confusion and discouragement in this life. But then we recognize God's sovereignty and the fact that his plans will most certainly be accomplished. And we read the pages of scripture and we say all about the prophecy that is made and also fulfilled within scripture. And then we know that there's still prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but we're in the midst of it. And there's so much evidence to go around. And so therefore, when we understand that and see it, uh, our confusion and discouragement becomes confidence. And our fear dissipates. But sometimes we also might feel a strong sense of loneliness that even though we're surrounded by a whole bunch of people, and some of them might even be our family, we still feel lonely, like we're the only ones. And no one really cares. But then I enjoy his presence as I pray to him. And I recognize the fact of the matter that he's not just there And he's not so much in my presence, but I am in his presence, and I am also in his active presence, that he's currently doing lots of things. He is standing up for me. He is my defense attorney. He's your defense attorney. And you need him standing up for you. And that's in real time. It's not past or even future. It's real time that he's defending you. He is your advocate. He is your high priest. He's your defense attorney. And I recognize that. It's like, wow, my loneliness turns to fellowship. But then I could also be anger, angry as well. And I see example after example after example. And Micah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 is a prime example of that where I see and experience, wow, he's just not the all-sovereign, only the all-sovereign. He is also filled with tender mercies toward me. And my anger turns and transforms into patience with myself and others. See, God's questions, you could say, were rhetorical because they're totally unanswerable. (laughs) Because there's nothing that you could get to stick on God that's negative. He's a perfect record. Thousand percent batting average. In the objective observer, the heavens, the mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth, could easily rattle off a long list of great smashing victories and benefits that God has given to his people. And so so Micah, just kind of keeping things succinct, gives exhibit A, exhibit B, and exhibit C in true courtroom manner. Look what verses 4 and 5 say. He lists three things. Some would say four, but I think three is more accurate. It says here in verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so there are three historical events here. Of course, past tense from Micah's perspective. Probably roughly 700 years 
before Micah. These three events happened, give or take a few years. They are the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt. Balak, the king of Moab, who tried to get the four higher prophet Balaam to prophesy curses against Israel. And then thirdly, the Israelites passing over the river Jordan from Shatim to Gilgal. Those are the three events. Those are exhibits A, B, and C. And first, God sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, he represented God to man. Aaron, the high priest, represented man to God. But Moses was the deliverer. That's what his name means, to pick out, to pull out. And he persisted with Pharaoh to let his people go. And ten plagues later, that's exactly what happened. Aaron was the high priest, the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood. Miriam was the prophetess. She led the song of triumph at the Red Sea after the Israelites were delivered from bondage. And then from that event came the central event of the Hebrew calendar, the Passover, when Israel was redeemed out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. The second event, Exhibit B, was that Yahweh reminded the reader about Balak, the king of Moab. He wanted Israel cursed. He, he wanted to hire Balaam, a prophet, to do just that. But he told the king that God would never do it. And Balaam, it wound up, even though he was called on to curse Israel, the only thing that he would and could do is bless Israel. So this non-Jew uh, perhaps knew even about the covenants, that there's no way to beat these people. There's, there's no way that God's going to curse them because he will ultimately bless them. I just know that. I'm a prophet. That's what I do for a living. But Exhibit C, thirdly, he also recalled the crossing from Shittim on the east side of the Jordan River as the Israelite nation came up out of the Sinai to the east through the east side of the Jordan River to a city called Shittim. And that is roughly where they crossed over westward through the Jordan River to get to Gilgal. And that short transition was huge because it planted the Israelites in the land flowing with milk and honey. They penetrated into their land. And they would head west to Jericho and then north and south and conquer most of the land of Canaan, ultimately. That transition was huge because it put the Israelites in the central part of the land that they would ultimately possess. And Gilgal will be where they'd celebrate the Passover and then use Gilgal as the base of operations and springboard against their mighty victory in Jericho. Moses would deliver and Joshua would attain the land ultimately. So God's actions have only ever benefited his people. God always did what was consistent with his covenant obligations to his people. God never overburdened his people. He always protected and defended and equipped his people. He drew them from slavery through a dangerous land and finally, finally into their own country, into their own nation. The evidence clearly showed that Yahweh was faithful and consistent. I rest my case. 
the Israelites were not always immediately safe, very rarely comfortable, and almost never happy. (laughs) But that's okay because God never promised them those things. (laughs) He did promise other things, though. God, even for us in this dispensation, in this time period, church, 2023 Keller, Texas, God, you're not always safe, but you are always secure. You might say, isn't that the same thing? No, that's your homework assignment. What's the difference between safety and security? God, you're not always safe, and you don't always give us safety, but you do always provide security. Hmm. God, you are certainly not always soothing but you are always satisfying to me god you're definitely with the exception of your prophecies you're not always predictable but you are always thoroughly perfectly a promise keeper There are some things God has promised to us, and there are some things that he has not promised to us. He has not always promised us perfect safety and equilibrium in this life. So if you think he has, you need to jettison that by hitting the delete button of your expectations. He has never, ever promised to just soothe us like a mother would soothe a crying baby. And he has, with the exception, of course, of his prophecies, he's not always perfectly predictable either. But he always gives us security. He is the one who satisfies us. Why? Well, because he meets all of our needs. And he is the one who, for the things that he has promised, most certainly will keep those promises. Maybe not according to our timeline, but our timeline and expectations are flawed and his are not. Micah could say, I rest my case. God is perfect in his relationship, in his attitude, and his perspective, and his movement toward his people. But his people are flawed. But yet, he is gracious and forgiving. This is a God. As we read the pages of Scripture, I'm not talking about just experience. I'm talking about Scripture, hard data. But it's also confirmed by experience as well. And, and this is the God who, uh, who we worship, who we follow. Know him. And make him known as well. There's no other God like him. He is wholly unique. There's not any gods that even claim to be like him for crying out loud. But he is the one who claims it and also delivers upon it. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray, Father, that we will understand it. And as we understand your word, we'll understand you better. And that's the build out. That's the purpose. And then we will know you and your attractiveness 
and we will let others know about you as well. So we pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then together on this last day of 2023, God's people said, Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we join our voices in response to the preaching of God's word.